Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, thank you, Steve, once again. I'm going to use that um, wife thing as long as I can. Just if I keep coming alone, you'll keep inviting me back, hoping she comes back, right? So uh, it is just a sweet privilege to be back here uh, in Atlantic Canada and on the island. It, time is such a funny thing. I mean, life is so strange. I had no idea last year when I was standing here that I'd be back this year, and yet uh, I reflect even as I was flying out here on the goodness of last year, what a sweet time of fellowship that was, and already now in just the short day that I've been here to be able to kind of renew fellowship with people from last year, and particularly I'm so grateful just for the opportunity to continue my relationship with Steve. You know, I have the opportunity to speak at conferences like this on occasion, and it's always a privilege. You just meet people, and you see what God is doing in other places, and it encourages your heart. But I tell you, when it comes to hosts, Steve Bray is right at the top of the list. Um, he is, yeah, that is very appropriate. Um, you know this. I'm just, I'm just telling you what you already know. He is one of the warmest and most encouraging and most engaging, probably one of the most energetic guys I know. And he's using that energy to serve people. To serve God, you've been the beneficiaries of that. I've been the beneficiary of that. And so, Steve, I'm just so grateful for the privilege of being here again. Thank you for inviting me. I feel a deep sense of privilege. So let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be here each of our three evenings. Gospel of Mark. If you could find chapter 10. When Steve asked several months ago if I'd be interested and willing to come and participate in this year's conference, what immediately came to mind when he talked about the theme was a section of Mark's gospel that I had already been working through in my own ministry. And so I'm just thrilled. I want you to know I'm excited about bringing this. This has already had a profound impact. I trust in my own church, but I know it has had on me. You know the experience of having your faith built. I believed the things in this gospel before, but as I've worked through this gospel again, there has been a deepening of my faith. I find myself regularly saying, I believe this. I believe this more than I used to. I find myself so encouraged by being confronted once again with the truth of this gospel and knowing it is the foundation upon which I stand and upon which all of our ministries stand. I'm assuming that most of us have some basic familiarity with the Gospel of Mark. This Gospel, written by Mark, is very special in a lot of ways. In one particular sense, this was the first Gospel to be written. When Mark sat down to write his words in this book, he was doing something that no one had ever done before. Here, for the very first time, the words... And the deeds of Jesus were carefully recorded, carefully written down, preserved in writing. And Mark's style in this gospel ends up being very distinctive. He focuses more on Jesus' actions, Jesus' deeds, less on Jesus' teaching. Obviously, Jesus' teaching is present, but Mark's focus is really on 
the action, the, the, the doing, the behavior of Jesus more than the other Gospels will do. And it's his description of Jesus' actions that are often presented in such vivid detail that we can actually visualize what exactly, in very detailed manner, what was happening. Mark's gospel, it's vivid, it's emphatic, it's thought-provoking, it's never dull. And all of it is designed to draw us in. Because Mark wants the lives of his readers to be touched and shaped in fact, profoundly changed by this life that he's writing about. He doesn't want just mildly interested readers. No, he wants us drawn in because he knows our lives depend on this life. So he sits down to write. Maybe you remember his opening line, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And even in that introductory line, we can begin to detect the key themes that are going to be kind of unfolded throughout Mark's gospel. Here's what we see in Mark as as it proceeds. Three key themes. I'm just giving you a little bit of a background for our focus on chapters 10 and 11, 12 in the next three days. Three key themes that Mark emphasizes. First of all, Jesus is who Mark announces him to be. That's a key emphasis in this gospel, the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Mark speaks the first half of his gospel pretty much showing this, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Jesus is who Mark announces him right at the very beginning of his gospel to be. That's the first theme. You see as you walk through Mark. Secondly, Jesus calls people to commit their lives fully and completely to him. Follow me are the words. And we see them show up as early as chapter 1, verse 16. We'll see that those words and that theme throughout the gospel. Jesus is calling people to commit themselves fully and completely to him. That's what Mark's gospel is doing. It's making sure that we as readers of the gospel hear Jesus' call to commit our lives fully and completely to him. And then there's a third, another important theme that runs through. It's present even in that first verse, though. It's this true joy is found in committing fully to Jesus and only in committing fully to Jesus. So Jesus is who, Mark's announce, who Mark announces him to be, and Jesus is calling people to fully commit themselves, fully and completely commit themselves to him. And Mark's third theme is true joy is found in committing to Jesus and only in committing to Jesus. Mark wants us to see that and get that and know that, not just here, but here. Mark is very eager for there to be a recognition, a knowledge, a deep personal interior knowledge that joy, life, is found in following Jesus. Remember he said this in that very first verse, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the good news. A better translation would actually be the joyful news of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. And if, now notice my argument here, if a major theme of this book is the call to follow Jesus, to commit our lives fully and completely to him, which it is, and if Mark calls his book the gospel, good news, which he does, then we have to conclude that the good news of Jesus Christ is not just the message of initial salvation. The good news of Jesus Christ is not just Jesus died for our sins. No, the good news also is the message of discipleship. That's good news. That's joyful news. Listen, the message of discipleship is good news. The message of discipleship is joyful news. You see, the gospel is not just Jesus saves us from our sins. That's good news, obviously. It's really good news, right? (laughs) But the gospel is also, the gospel is also, Jesus brings us into an existence, into a life of goodness, of following him. So that's the big view of Mark's gospel. But we want for our time together over these next few days to focus in on this theme of discipleship, following Christ. And there is a moment, as you may be aware, in Mark's gospel, this watershed moment. Happens in chapter 8, verse 29. You're probably familiar with it. Peter's confession. All through the first eight chapters, Mark shows us Jesus demonstrating that he is the Son of God, trying to bring people to the point of recognizing who he is. So the whole gospel, really, the first eight chapters, is aimed at this moment, chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter, the first human being in the gospel to speak the words, you are the Christ. Everything up to that point has been aiming at this. Jesus has been demonstrating it through all of his miracles. But now, with Peter's confession, the focus shifts from Jesus demonstrating who he is now to Jesus beginning to bear down on what it means for his disciples that he is the Christ, what it means for his disciples, what it really means for them to follow him. And we see this especially now in chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. It's a growing theme. And given the theme of our gathering, that's where I want us to focus. So now let me ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. I guess you're already there, but let me ask you to look with me specifically at verse 32. And I'm going to read from verse 32 to verse 45. You do your best to follow along carefully. This is God's Word. I'm going to do my best to read carefully. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem... And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, I want you to notice that, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I remember when I was in high school, going to Mary D. Bradford High School in Kenosha, Wisconsin, back in the 70s. I had just gotten my driver's license, and it seemed like every time that I was going to go somewhere in the car, we had this just wonderful blue Chevy Impala that was way too powerful for a 16-year-old kid to be driving. I mean, I can't tell you how many horsepower it was, but all I knew was that it accelerated really fast. Every time I got in that car or was planning to get in that car to go somewhere, it seemed like my parents, my mom or my dad, would say to me just a little two-word sentence. You can probably guess what it is. Drive carefully. And I know that regularly, my heart, as I was outside walking out to the car, I'd be thinking in response to what I'd just been told, I know you've told me that many times In fact, in my heart, I'd be thinking, why are you telling me that again? And in my, I've got everything under control kind of attitude, I'd drive off. I now know what was likely going on in my parents' minds as I was driving off. They were probably thinking something like, he probably gets tired of us saying that all the time. He's probably thinking, why are you telling me that again? And if he'd ask, we'd have to say, because what we're saying is so important and because we're not confident that it's really sunk in yet. We're not confident that you've embraced it personally, which was not some sort of kind of overly officious posture on my parents' part. It was just wisdom on their part. You see, I get that now that I'm on the other side of that conversation, telling my children, drive carefully. (laughs) Something very similar is happening here in Mark chapter 10. This is now the third time in a relatively brief period that Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. 
Look back with me at chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he told them this plainly. And he tells them again, chapter 9, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And now, here again, chapter 10, the middle of verse 32, we read those words. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus repeats the same thing three times in three consecutive chapters, and I can just imagine the disciples saying, maybe even with a little exasperation, why do you keep saying that? Why are you telling us that again? And it's evident from what goes on here in this passage that in Jesus' mind, he's thinking something like, I'll tell you why. It's because what I'm saying is so important and because it's clear that it's not really sinking in. I'm not confident that you've embraced this personally. Now, let's just step back for a moment. Let's just kind of hit the pause button here and remind ourselves this book with all of these accounts that have happened up to this point wasn't written for these disciples. Jesus is dealing directly with the disciples back then in that particular historical moment. This stuff was written down for other people. Initially for a group of young believers, probably in the city of Rome, probably around the year 40 or 50 AD, to whom Mark was writing, but also in God's larger purpose for a whole host of people, including us, who would read this book. This is here for us. This is God speaking to us, telling this to us. And as we read Mark's gospel, we need to be keep, keep asking the question, what is God's word calling for from us? Not long ago, I taught a, a class at our, at our church just about kind of Bible study methods. And during the course of that, I introduced to our, our church two questions. And I used a little acronym, WIGS, W-I-G-S, and WATER, W-A-T-E-R, representing two questions that you should ask every time you come to God's Word. Wigs, what is God saying? And WATER, what are the expected responses? Those are questions you should always be asking when you're reading your Bible. And while answering those questions, we need to keep in mind this major emphasis that we keep encountering in Mark's Gospel of discipleship, following Christ, total commitment to Christ. The question that Mark's gospel is asking is, are you totally committed to Christ? That's the question God was putting before those young Christians in Rome through Mark's gospel. That's the question God is putting before us. Are you, am I, totally committed to Christ in everything? Am I living in every part of my life as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus? So every week as you preach, every week as you hear God's Word, we've got to be thinking, this is for me. So what does this mean for me? And what's going to help here 
in answering that question with this particular passage is seeing how Jesus interacts with his disciples. He's just told them again that he's going to die. And they're thinking, why do you keep saying that? Why are you telling us that again? And Jesus, with his words and by his actions, is saying, there's two reasons I keep telling you this. First, it's because what I'm saying is so important for you and for your discipleship. And second, because it's clear that this hasn't sunk in yet. It's clear you have not embraced this personally. Well, let's look at that second reason first. It's clear that the disciples hadn't embraced this yet. It hasn't sunk in. Jesus says, listen, there is evidently something still operating in your lives that shows you're not getting what I'm saying. And as we look at this, this interaction with the disciples, it becomes a mirror by which we can kind of look at ourselves. Look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, now notice, this is immediately after Jesus has said now for the third time he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. Immediately after this, James and John come and they say to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Now they've got a little part of this right. Apparently they get that Jesus is destined for glory. It's a good thing to be right about. There's a lot of people who don't get that. Here's how you can tell whether somebody gets that or not. I mean, if you know that a certain company's stock is going to just take off and just go through the roof, well, you buy that company's stock, right? You don't buy the competitor's stock. If you know, I don't know what kind of storms you get up here in PEI, but if you know that, that a hurricane's coming, for example, and it's just going to de just devastate the island, and this is going to be the only building that remains standing, what do you do? You get in this building, not the other buildings. If you know that in the end Jesus is going to reign in glory over all rivals, well, then you follow Jesus and not the things that rival Jesus. So James and John and the other disciples have got something right. They know that Jesus is destined for glory, and so they're following Jesus, kind of, but it's clear that they've not grasped the full significance of what Jesus has said, despite Jesus' repeated teaching, despite his repeated efforts to get into them this self-renunciation of the cross and the implications that that had for them, that they're not getting it. When he first said this back in chapter 8, you remember what happened? Peter tried to rebuke him. When he said it again in chapter 9, you remember what happened? The disciples started arguing amongst themselves who would be the greatest. Now here he says it again for the third time. And what happens? James and John come to him and ask about positions of prominence. This pattern, I mean, it's almost humorously predictable. See, they're not embracing this personally. It's not sinking in. They're, they're still caught up with themselves, living for themselves, loving their own reputation, loving their own comfort, 
loving their own glory. And I don't know if that resonates with any of you or not, but it resonates with me. At first, it just seems so blatant what James and John say, doesn't it? What James and John are doing, it just feels blatantly self-promoting. And we hear this and maybe we can find ourselves saying, wow, I, I don't do that. But we need to stop and consider where and how does that same impulse show up in me? I learned this principle some time back, not to rush too quickly by these examples of obvious selfishness saying, well, I don't do that, so I'm good. I remember learning this when I was reading Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. Remember, he's talking about acts of righteousness. Don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by men. And he talks specifically about praying and the, the hypocrites who prayed openly in the synagogues and on the street corners and made sure that they were praying. Do you remember how Jesus says it? to be seen by men. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, I don't do that, and so I must not be guilty of what Jesus is talking about. And at that moment, the Spirit of God just said very clearly, not so fast. Not so fast. Just stop and consider, are you saying, Mike, that you don't pray to be seen by men in any way? And not long after that, God helped me to see exactly how, at least one of the ways that I pray to be seen by men. I was at that point serving as an elder at a church while I was teaching at Trinity and because I was in a position of leadership, people would come to you on a Sunday morning and they'd say, would you pray for me about this particular thing going on in my life? And of course you'd respond as a good elder should, of course I'll pray for you. And I would pray for them. And a week later I'd see them in church and I'd go up to them and say, How's it going with such and such, that thing that you shared with me that you wanted me to pray for? And, and not, not infrequently, people would say, you wouldn't believe what God has done this past week. It's amazing how God has answered prayer. And they would go on to talk about it. And as they were talking, I'm just looking for an opportunity to tell them, well, I prayed for you. I, now, is there anything wrong with me praying for them? No. And is it sometimes encouraging to let people know you've been praying for them? Of course, but what I detected in that was at least a little bit of wanting some credit for what God was doing in their lives. I was praying, God helped me to see, at least in some part, to be seen by men. Not so fast when you experience these or encounter these examples of obvious selfishness that tempt us to say, well, I don't do that. So we read this, this experience with James and John, and we need to stop and consider how does this desire for glory and prominence show up in my life? And for me, anyway, I, I just don't have to look very long or very far to see it. I'm regularly aware. Those of you in ministry, I, I'm imagining can identify with, with this. I just am regularly aware and grieved by my appetite for praise. It's something I can just get discouraged by. And I can wonder, will I ever in this lifetime really desire the glory of Christ the way I desire the glory of Mike? As the first, the deepest instinct of my heart. I am so grateful for God's patience. We're all sinners. Things take time, usually a lot longer than we think they should. 
I'm so grateful for Psalm 103. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. But he is persistent because he loves us. Jesus says, listen, you're not getting it. You're not understanding. He says to James and John, you don't know what you're asking for. He says, my path to glory is through suffering, through death. And if you are going to follow me, see what he says in verse 38? Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Any glory you experience, James, John, any glory you experience, if you follow me, you will experience amazing, unending glory someday, but any glory you enter into will be preceded by costly discipleship. At minimum, dying to self. And all of the various forms of self-love that show up in your heart. You see, at first, when Jesus says what he says there in verse 38, it might seem to indicate that he's saying to James and John, you, you just don't have a clue. You could never drink the cup that I'm going to drink. You could never endure the baptism with which I'm about to be baptized. But notice what Jesus says in verse 39. They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will experience that, baptized. In other, that baptism. In other words, what they weren't getting was that following Jesus was going to mean cost. Dying to self. No longer living for self. Instead, being totally committed to Christ, no matter what. Jesus spells this out. He tells them what this is going to mean in very practical terms. Look at verse Look at verse 42. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Following me, listen carefully to what Jesus is saying, following me means dying to yourself and serving others. That's what Jesus says here. Following me means dying to yourself and serving others. Following Christ means becoming more like Christ. We follow him. In fact, for us, Jesus is actually leading us from the inside. We've been united with Christ by faith. Christ lives in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we follow his leadership from within. Yes, we look to him, we look to his word, but we are abiding in him. He's abiding in us. And therefore, as Christians, as Peter says, we can follow in his steps. Or as John says, we ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Or as Paul says... Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or specifically, as Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you love one another. Or as he says right here, verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
Following Jesus means serving others. That's what Jesus says. You know, we read that sometimes and we can be too quick to reduce that to kind of doing things for others, which of course it includes, most definitely. But first, it's an attitude. It's a change of the heart. It permeates everything that we do, motivates all of our actions. It's a laying down of self-interest and a looking to the interests of others, which is radically different from how humans ordinarily act. We're to serve others, and that will cost. It's costly to serve others, right? It can be exhausting to be a friend to a hurting person. It can be exhausting to be a faithful friend to an ordinary person. And we're all hurting in some way. We're all needy in some way. Most of us are needy in many ways. We're all broken and messy in some way. Nobody's got it all together. Folks, we're all just helping one another into heaven, carrying one another into heaven. So you live to serve others, and it will cost you, whether it's friendship or parenting or pastoring or serving in some capacity in the body of Christ, caring for and about others. And so Jesus says, that's one reason why I keep telling you about both my suffering and my death. It has implications for you if you're going to follow me. To his disciples, he says, doesn't seem like you're getting this yet. There's a way that I'm calling you to follow. It's a way of sacrifice. It's a way of serving others And I'm not sure that you've embraced that personally yet. But folks, Jesus' death is so much more than an example to us. That it is an example and that it's meant here to be an example is clear from how verse 44 leads to verse 45. Did you notice that? Whoever would be first among you must be a slave, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. My suffering and death is meant to be an example. It's meant to be exemplary for you. But there is so much more here. And the fact is, we would never be able to do what Jesus calls us to do if it wasn't for the more that is here. And that brings us to the other reason why Jesus keeps telling them. It's because what he keeps telling them is so important. We get a hint of this even from the emphasis in these chapters on, of all things, the direction of Jesus' travel. Now follow me here. Remember back in chapter 8, they'd been way up north. That's where the transfiguration took place. That's recounted for us in chapter 8, way up north. And after the transfiguration, they start traveling south, back through Galilee. We might have expected them to stay there because Jesus had spent so much time of his early ministry, but no, they come through Galilee and they keep going from there to Judea. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He left there and went to the region of Judea, but he doesn't stop there. They're going in a certain direction. Jesus is actually heading somewhere. He's on a journey. Look at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, to where? Verse 32. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. 
And did you notice when I read that earlier that Jesus is out in front? He's out in front. And those who are following him are, they're amazed that he's out in front and they're kind of afraid because they know what awaits him there and yet he is still boldly going. Jesus is not sneaking into Jerusalem. We'll see that so clearly when he arrives. So even the direction of their travel speaks of the importance and the significance of this thing that Jesus keeps telling them. Jesus is purposefully going to Jerusalem. Listen, I want, I want to draw a line here in your Bibles for you. I want to draw a clear, kind of bold, red line from verses 33 and 34 down to verse, 30, to, to verse 45. So let me read those verses. I'll let you draw the line either in your mind or in your Bible if you happen to have a blood red marker with you. Look at verse 32. I'll start in the middle. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now verse 45. For... Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now there's two things that we need to notice in that line that we just drew. From verse 33 and 34, it seems like Jesus' death is it's all the doing of man. Someone is going to deliver him over to the chief priests and the scribes. And then the priests and the scribes are going to condemn him and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and then the Gentiles are going to mock him and spit on him and flog him and ultimately kill him. Notice throughout those verses, it's they will, they will, they will, over and again. And yet, in verse 45, we read, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus didn't come to earth for some other reason as kind of a moral exemplar and just happened to get caught up in a bad political situation that resulted in his death. No, he came to give his life. Yes, there was human instrumentality involved, but in the end, this is the purposeful, voluntary giving of himself as a substitution. You see that word? As a ransom. He is paying what those who are captive cannot pay. He's paying it for them so that they can go free. See, we were, we were under captivity to our sin, to the wages of our sin, death. And folks, if we're not rescued, we will pay that penalty. So the captivity... The bondage we need ransoming from is the bondage of sin and eternal punishment. It's, it's amazing how people, it's amazing how we can sometimes excuse ourselves here. Well, I'm not really that bad. I'm not as bad as other people. My sins are small compared to others. And by the way, God would not condemn me. He's a loving God and eternal punishment would be unjust. I mean, let's be real here. All of those and all of the other kind of things that come to our minds like it, those are workings of our own minds. But the truth 
It's written by God in our conscience, and it's written very plainly in His Word. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So how does Jesus save us? How does Jesus rescue us? The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. Folks, that is the heart of the Christian message. It's the central fact in all of history. Jesus came to give His life as a ransom for many. So who are the many? All who believe. To all who receive Him, He gave the right to become sons of God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, the world doesn't need, it didn't need, another prophet or another moral teacher or another political leader. What we need is someone who can rescue us, who can ransom us from guilt and death. There are going to be people, you know this, there's going to be people crossing your path. In fact, there's even going to be people sitting in your church regularly, who need to hear that message and who need to turn and trust in Jesus Christ, who need to hear the word of salvation. This is the word of salvation. This is the good news right here. Jesus Christ came to save sinners and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, turning to Christ and saying, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, save me. What's the promise of God's word? they will be saved. That is the amazingly good news of this book. And Jesus came, he calls us to believe in that and to believe in him. But now here's where I want to go with this. There is a second thing that we need to notice in that line that we drew from verses 33 to 30 and 34 to verse 45. It's not just important. Why does Jesus keep telling them, th th them this? It's not just important for their salvation. It's important for their discipleship. Folks, listen to me, please. If you are a Christian, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have accomplished and have made available everything that we need for a life of faithful and joyful discipleship. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have accomplished, they've made available everything we need, not just for our initial salvation, but for a life of faithful and joyful discipleship. I hope you notice that all three times Jesus tells his disciples about his coming death, he ends by speaking of what? His resurrection. Every time. Chapter 8, verse 31, look at it there. And after three days, rise again. Chapter 9, verse 31, the same thing. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Chapter 10, verse 34, and after three days he will rise. You see, when he tells them this again and again and again, he's not just telling them he's going to die, he's telling them that after he dies, he's going to live again. In his death, our sins are borne away as far as the east is from the west. In his resurrection, we have new life 
in his life and we have a living, risen Savior who is now, right now, supplying everything you need to live a life of faithful, joyful discipleship. See, I need help to do what Jesus calls me to do. I need help to follow him in this path of dying to myself and serving others, living for others. I can't do that on my own. But Jesus Christ has given me new life. And he is now my helper, my supplier of all that I need to live like that. Folks, when you become a Christian, Jesus becomes your helper. He calls for this kind of living, and then he tells you, I'll help you. I've come to serve you in this way as well. See, this radical call for serving others is not something we do in our own strength for Jesus. It's something He enables us to do, serving others with the strength He supplies. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He's serving us in our discipleship. He supplies strength. He supplies counsel. He supplies friendship and fellowship and comfort and encourage. All along the way, He supplies everything that we need. I love Romans 8.28. I think it's my favorite verse in the Bible. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? So I have this picture of Jesus standing with his arms outstretched, no longer on the cross. He's standing, and behind him are these massive, just massive doors, ornate, beautiful, carved wooden doors. And Jesus is standing there, and he's reaching back, And he's about to fling these doors open. And these doors are the doors of grace that come through him. And what he's saying is, look, I died to secure your salvation. I live now to supply everything you need for life and godliness. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's the first part. How will he not also along with him graciously Give us all things. So there stands Jesus saying, look at all that I have for you. Yes, I gave my life to ransom you, but having ransomed you, now you are mine and I abide in you and you abide in me and I will make you fruitful and faithful and joyful and I'll fellowship with you and I will supply all of your needs. I'll walk alongside you. Why does Jesus tell his disciples about his death and resurrection again and again? Because they are so important to their discipleship. It's so important for them to know what Christ has done and what what he's done got done for them. The guilt problem, absolutely dealt with by his ransoming death but also the discipleship journey completely provided for through new life in Christ, a living Christ with us. Let me say it again. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have accomplished and made available everything we need for a life of faithful, joyful discipleship. Folks, there is no question. Jesus is calling for our discipleship here. We're going to see this night after night. Jesus is calling for our total and complete commitment to him. 
He's calling for and seeking to stir up discipleship, a personally embraced and a highly prioritized passion for following Christ. A personally embraced and a highly prioritized passion for being Christians. A personally embraced and a highly prioritized passion for living totally committed to Jesus. That will translate into a joyfully ransomed people serving others in the power of the risen Lord. To his glory, amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to say thank you for this book. We want to say thank you particularly for this gospel of Mark that you, by your Spirit, caused Mark to write and caused him to write it in just this way so that we might hold in our hands even now, these 2,000 years later, clear words about who Christ is and what he calls for from us and about all that he has supplied through his death and resurrection. God, I pray that you would take what we've heard and what's been spoken tonight, and God, I just would ask that you would take at least part of this to every one of our hearts and cause it to bear fruit that will last. I pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.